This is The Radical Therapist, a space where we explore the intersections of collaborative therapy, philosophy, art and science and technology in a post-Freud, post-psychology world. Welcome to The Radical Therapist. This is your host, Chris Hoff. We are now at episode number 78, and today we are talking about uh, the happiness industry with uh, Will Davies, William Davies, uh, who wrote the book a few years ago, The Happiness Industry, How the Government and Big Business Sold Us Well-Being. This is a, really an illuminating one. I thought it was great. If you are in the helping professions, I think you're really going to find this conversation valuable and uh, hopefully something to pay attention to. Uh, before we get there, I just have a couple of asks. Uh, of course, always the first one is please, if you are finding these useful and helpful, et cetera, please rate and review the show. Even if you don't find them useful, you can rate and review the show on uh, iTunes or wherever you're listening to the podcast. And secondly, you know, I want to try something different. And that's, uh, I'm going to ask if you could share this podcast on your social media and tag me either at the Radical Therapist uh, or Dr. Chris Hoff. I'm on social media, Instagram, that kind of thing at those um, handles. And uh, so th- I want to know who's listening, where you're at, and um, what you're thinking. And so please uh, think about uh, sharing on your social media and tagging me, and I'll I'll do the same. I'll share that as well. So, um, yeah, and that would be very helpful to get the word out. So, all right. Well, let's get to the show. Like I said, this was a real rich conversation, very illuminating, and I think you're going to really enjoy it. We are talking to Will Davies who is an English writer, political, and sociological theorist. His work focuses on the issues of consumerism, happiness, and the history and function of expertise on a society. Davies has written for a variety of newspapers and periodicals, including The Guardian, New Left Review, London Review of Books, and The Atlantic. In uh, 2015, he uh, published his second book, The Happiness Industry, which we'll be talking about, which assesses the relationship between consumer capitalism, big data, and positive psychology. And Davies is the co-director of the Political Economy Research Center in London and is a professor at Goldsmiths in London. So without further ado, let's meet Will. All right, Will, welcome to the Radical Therapist podcast. Thank you. Good to have you. Um, Okay, we were just talking before I hit record about how I found your book, The Happiness Industry, How the Government and Big Business Sold Us Well-Being. And I know it's a few years old, but I recently discovered it and wanted to kind of have you on the show and, and kind of talk about it because it, it it covers a lot of themes that we do cover on this podcast. And I thought it was just uh, and and that I think we're still confronting today. So um, so I guess I, I'm going to start by kind of maybe asking you, you, you start the book by arguing that the future of successful capitalism depends on our ability to combat stress, misery, and illness, and put relaxation, happiness, and wellness in their place, as evidenced by, you know, uh, business, government, World Economic Forum, etc., all focusing on happiness and well-being. And I'm wondering if you could say more about this growing focus on happiness in the marketplace. Sure. Well, I think there's been a long history of interest um, in emotions in the business community. Um, in the book, I tell a, a historical story as well as a, as a contemporary analysis about 
how really since the origins of psychology in the late or modern psychology in the late 19th century there's been efforts to try and take some of its insights and apply them to uh, the business realm in space of advertising research market research uh, but also particularly human resource management and i think your question and, and and the passage that you refer to is specifically relevant to the world of work and and management um and i think what i mean we're living in a in a very different world now <laughs> 2020 for lots of reasons um but uh, what i was 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 responding to i'm not saying it's it's so different that, that these these themes have kind of disappeared but um but what i was what i was interested in was the fact that uh, the language of, of happiness and positivity and the question of how to Uh, inculcate greater enthusiasm amongst um staff and employees but also just on a kind of personal level to try and turn oneself into a more kind of positive and enthusiastic uh, enterprise um had become a sort of uh, very wide ranging ideological project that i think has particularly resonance in the united states but also has, has spread around the world um I mean there were kind of I would say there were sort of three tiers to this really um in terms of areas where this question of of happiness and enthusiasm enters the marketplace in terms of work um on the one hand there's the kind of elite executive area which is particularly concerned with with stress and burnout which is where you get sort of you know executive coaching and and and, and sort of elite wellness products and uh, this uh, really sort of you know heavily branded uh extremely lucrative uh, industry of 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 various people drawing on you know inverted commas science uh, to tell you how to become a more motivated high performance individual and that may involve um forms of um, meditation and, and and so on and you know makes allusions to 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 neuroscience and but also might draw on kind of things like um the elite sports um expertise about sort of athletic um wellness and so on then you have a kind of middle tier which is uh about the kind of broad service sector that has grown since the 1960s of people in workplaces who are sort of broadly engaged with their work but sometimes a bit disengaged and might fall ill or might take days off which they you know due to some kind of stress or illness and so on and that's led management to become uh, extremely interested in psychological and uh, physiological and medical analysis of how to ensure that that staff don't become disengaged uh, disillusioned um sick stressed and so on because there's a very obvious kind of bottom line reason for keeping them in the workplace and then below that i suppose there's the sort of more kind of low wage service sector um which is less concerned with how people are actually feeling or how they actually are or what their their their, their medical condition might be and more into sort of how are they behaving you know how in a call center are people kind of do they sound happy um does the person who serves you your coffee look like they're having a good time you know it's much more yeah, about a kind yeah. of veneer of 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 sort of positive behavior uh, but less concerned with the kind of broader human being. Yeah, that's great. And you you kind of touched on this, but you are critical that the science of well-being uh which is pretty hot now is is being tangled is becoming tangled up with economics and technology and a lot of technology and I'm wondering if you could say more mm-hmm. about this. Sure. Well, I mean, there was a a big breakthrough I suppose in in the 1990s which was partly what inspired me to become interested in this in the first place was I I'm an economic sociologist is my my academic background and I've been very interested in in how do economists think about the world and 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 how does what economists say and think about the world influence how the world is then governed and what policymakers do so in my other work I've looked at completely separate areas of of what economists say and and so on um and I became interested in the fact that in the 1990s economists 
started to study happiness and uh, emotions and affect in ways that uh, had, there was a kind of prehistory to this that I talk a bit about in the book in the 19th century, where some economists believed that maybe economics could be a kind of perfect science of of, of pleasure, um, if you think of the marketplace as a as a place that kind of delivers value to consumers, um, but they began to use surveys based on questions such as, you know, broadly speaking, how satisfied are you with your life, and how do you, how did you feel yesterday, and this sort of thing, to start to try to put numbers on the psychological effects of things like unemployment, divorce, um, different consumption habits, uh, inequality, um, and lots of the findings from that body of economics actually in some ways were quite left-wing because a lot of the, the findings was that things like actually, you know, keeping people living in broadly relatively egalitarian societies with relatively high levels of, of job security and, and, and high levels of solidarity and spending time with people they care about, you know, unsurprisingly, actually makes people feel quite good. Um, so, so that's the kind of economic analysis. But I think that one of the um, the dangers in that, and this is really, I suppose, what the where my book goes from being sort of broadly sort of descriptive and, 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 and okay with its subject matter to becoming more critical, is if you, if you, you know, if, if in an effort to try and understand the importance of, say, you know, depression, say, if you, if an economist says, look, you need to understand, if the economist is speaking to a policymaker, they say, um, well, depressed people are 12% less productive than, than, than happy people. Um, and there's that kind of data is, is around. Right, or, right. Um, unemployment leads people to become depressed and then they, they, they drop out of the labor market and then you have a kind of, you know, this is bad economic growth. That, that might be true and it might be well motivated. But what if the policymaker is then simply trying to kind of deal with these psychological problems for purely sort of instrumental economic gain, basically? And we've seen that in, in, in my own country, in the United Kingdom. There's been the use of um, cognitive behavioral therapy in labor market policies, in, in job centers and, you know, in, in, within the welfare state, where effectively people are, the cognitive behavioral therapy becomes almost like a sort of, uh, you know, a sort of behavioral activation program to try and get people back into work, back into the labor market and off the government's, you know, we have a more developed welfare state than in the United States or less so than mainland Europe, but, you know, trying to basically push people off the, the, the government balance sheet into the labor market and that therapy then becomes almost like a sort of um, eh, not punitive and not you know but but nevertheless something which is sort of trying to kind of cajole people and tell them that they're that they're okay and, and to, to listen a bit but then to sort of try and kind of get people moving kind of thing so that, that's the kind of economic story in terms of the technology the, what I suppose happened later was that since um, the spread of social media and smartphones and the fact that we live in a society of ubiquitous interfaces the whole time now, we have our phones, we are constantly touching screens, we, you know, those things you see in airports and, 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 and public restrooms and so on saying, you know, how was it kind of thing, you know, smiley face, unsmiley face, this kind of, <laughs> these interfaces are, are everywhere. Um, and this means that the capacity to extract data on our, on our feelings and our behavior and our moods has kind of shot up really in the 21st century. I mean, those those economists who were who were sort of developing that that economic analysis in the 90s were really reliant on survey data, um, which of course was good because it was standardised and it meant that they could kind of control what they were dealing with. But since then, you've seen all of this endless new kinds of data in terms of you know even even how how you touch your phone is potentially a, and, and how often and how fast it potentially is sending out kind of indicators of of, of of different forms of 
of, of, of affective um, states and, and, and moods. Um, so we live in, a, in this kind of world. Um, obviously, market researchers have always wanted to know this kind of, have this kind of data at their, their disposal ever since the, the, the origins of market research in the late 19th century. And now, um, the, I suppose, the, the, you know, the, the promise of social media and of the platform economy is that it becomes possible to build up these incredibly rich pictures of individual psychology so the amazon alexa for instance mm-hmm. um is not just listening when someone says alexa you know we need some more right. tomato ketchup. <laughs> it's listening the whole time and it's building up psychological profiles of different members of the household based on they can recognize the different voices and it is actually this was reported it is building up um pictures on their psychological state and potentially um forms of mental illness or stress or, or, or distress that they might be experiencing. So as to ultimately, you know, why does Amazon want to know anything? <laughs> he wants to sell people things. So, um, so that, 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 that is really a development of, of the last 20 years or so. Yeah, that's great. Um, you're also, and I think this is interesting, you're also critical of the positive psychology movement. And I'm wondering if you could say more about that. Well, I, I'm sort of um, ambivalent, I suppose, about okay. the positive okay. psychology movement, because I think that, much of the the substance of what positive psychology um, kind of uh, tells people or um, informs people or advises people is obviously good and obvious and 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 and, is, and much of it is evidence based and um, there are I think if you know if if, if people who are um, if people who are struggling and they have a kind of a, 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 a a mild depression or a, or a, or, a, or a type of mental illness that is um, something that is that is just about manageable. Obviously, all sorts of kind of tools and tricks and whatever kind of advice that can help them to sort of you know improve a bit is is to be welcomed. And and we all have um, they, you know some people go cycling, some people you know know that they need to I don't know go for a walk and these sorts of things. And any advice like that, of course, you know I don't I don't dismiss the importance and the value of these things. Just like you know you shouldn't dismiss anything that helps people. I think mm-hmm. um, or not 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 out of hand. Anyway, I think that the the the, the issue with with some positive psychology is that it has a kind of a an individualistic bias in certain respects in that it um potentially exaggerates the extent to which the sources of people's distress and feelings are within their control are within their own bodies or their brains and this sort of thing and of course i mean any of these sorts of areas of literature and 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 advice has the kind of good stuff and the bad stuff and i mean you know that's true of all of these sorts of kind of non-fiction um sort of advisory discourses mm. um and um and the bad stuff is really bad and the good stuff i'm sure is you know much better and and, and there's sort of good science and there's totally bogus science but i think that a lot of um uh the one of the sort of i suppose there's a question about what is the, the appropriate kind of scale really of of, of of how much you want to kind of optimize people if you can get people from a sort of you know, from a from a from a sort of slightly or any kind of negative frame of mind into something that that is more kind of manageable and tolerable and so on, and and is in some ways based on kind of common sense and and maybe some form of ethical wisdom because some of it reaches back to Aristotle and that, and that sort of you know questions of, of human flourishing, but I think that it's where it becomes a sort of life hack in a way, uh, a sort of you know a kind of productivity hack or a or a sort of you know sense that. Which I don't know if this counts as positive psychology, but there are, you know, there are these 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 areas of of advice which say, um, you know, 
only by being positive and happy about your life are you ever going to become like a millionaire or you know this yeah, sort of right, thing right. i mean there's a long history of this as well particularly in, in, in american particular sort of uh protestant traditions of which date a long way back um mm. of, of you know that the, the belief in in some kind of providence is enough to actually deliver the outcome i mean this right. has all sorts of guises yeah. but i think you know that, that that's a sort of aspect of some positive psychology but i think you know broadly speaking a study of a study of affect and a study of mood that helps people to sort of get a little bit more control over their, their lives and their moods is is one thing but i think that um the idea that moods um and affects are entirely within our control um is 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 a more problematic uh, question um and it also potentially reinforces an aspect of contemporary ideology um which is arguably part of the problem not part of the solution which is to say that you can kind of you know by measuring yourself and by um setting targets and goals you can keep on growing and keep on progressing and and keep on getting better and better and better so that so that the mood and mind become just like kind of you know physical fitness and um athleticism and and, and physical beauty and and so on mm. um and i think that there is evidence that also comes from a lot of happiness science that shows that um that that is actually a more of a, a basis for a for a level of, of 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 well it becomes a kind of neurosis at a certain point where effectively people you know you 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 end up sort of trying too hard to be happy and to be positive um and actually and this is what i think good positive psychology probably is 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 better for whereas actually you know someone's taking time out and and of course you know being grateful which is one of the main kind of like lessons of positive psychology is to be grateful but i think i mean i mean i i've i've relied on that a lot during this 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 lockdown it's just to kind of you know it's helpful to think well you know i've got this these things and i have you know the fact that i haven't got other things you know i've got to focus on what i've got and that's a kind of a positive psychology uh, um insight but i think that um you know some in some ways positive psychology meshes with aspects of a kind of a consumer culture which is particularly um damaging when brought together with social media mm. which where people start to compare their happiness to to other people's happiness right. and start to think about how other how happy other people are and and why aren't i that happy and and so on and and it becomes a sort of you know it 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 loses whatever sort of substance that it might originally have had becomes more like a um a sort of uh, something which is potentially more about putting on the the performances and the displays of of, of positivity as if you know merely through smiling everything's going to be fine and i mean you know, there is neurological evidence that smiling makes you feel better but that doesn't mean that that's a, a sort of lesson for life i don't think right yeah that's great thank you um so at this point, what would you say to folks that are wondering, why are you against happiness? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I hate happiness. <laughs> well, um, I mean, it's a, it's a valid question. Um, I mean, the um, uh, I came to this not because I'm against happiness. I think it's worth, um, I mean, there are, there, are, there are other ways of thinking about happiness. I mean, there are, I mean, I mentioned Aristotle. I mean, Aristotle saw happiness as the, the sort of ultimate um not goal because that sounds more like a kind of managerial thing but the, but but the ultimate purpose of 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 the human animal was to was to participate in in a in a rich um both private and public life and then to to fulfill fulfill oneself through through certain forms of of a practice rather than just simply to kind of change one's mood or one's feelings so that it was very much a kind of an active state but it's also worth thinking about how the term happiness 
it has the same root as the term happen or happenstance. Mm. And it's something that happens to you. It's not something that you necessarily can, can control. Um, and I think that that's a valuable um, thing to remember because one of the, um, I think one of the, the dangers of some of the industries and forms of expertise I'm talking about is the idea that happiness is something that can be kind of triggered. Um, and I mean, in some ways it can be triggered, but in, you know, through pharmaceuticals or, or narcotics or, mm. um, uh, or, you know, show someone a, a funny meme on Twitter and briefly they have a little rush of, of, of pleasure um, or more likely show them that someone has liked something they've done on Twitter and then right, they get the right, rush right, of pleasure. Right, right. um, I think that the, the way I came to this was, was, was with the concern with a, a broad instrumentalization of happiness, um, which was that happiness could become something that could, could become brought within a, 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 an industry and an infrastructure of, of measurement, prediction, control, which doesn't have to be capitalist because I mean socialist societies have uh, totalitarian socialist societies have, have have relied just as much if not in some ways more on on, on numbers and calculation and, and forms of, of, of psychological control so right. but it's I think that it's um, in, in my book I start by talking about the English philosopher Jeremy Bentham who in the late 19th century you know he decided oh happiness must be the point of human life what is happiness well it must come from the body because you know the body is the one sort of thing that we can be sure about in some way therefore society should be completely organized purely to kind of produce this physiological reaction um and the i suppose the interesting thing is that that is if you think about a world of kind of of, of, of alexa and uh, and of and of mood monitoring in the workplace and of economists who are sort of plugging various data sets about yeah, happiness and pleasure into their spreadsheets. That's the sort of, you know, Benthamite utopia, but possibly the Benthamite dystopia, um, because it's bringing something that should be a matter of happenstance, a matter of mm. ethics, a matter of, uh, of, 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 of relationships. And again, I think positive psychology, you know, to be fair to it, has has, has stressed the kind of relational aspect of, of happiness quite strongly. But nevertheless, the that you know the, the payoff comes back to the to the to the individual person in some way, but a, a vision of happiness that, that that was able to to think in terms of institutions. You know what what does a happy school look like or a, or a happy workplace look like that, that that isn't simply in terms of isn't simply decided in terms of um, uh, you know gauging kind of you know how how much people smile or, or how much they touch their phone or but actually involved dialogue and actually speaking to people and sometimes asking you know how how are you like you know like how are you doing and actually is based around trying to give people voice and 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 some kind of say over over the world they live in that could also be a, a version of happiness it might involve sometimes people being very angry and frustrated and saying i don't like this but that could also become legitimate parts of a of a of a of a university or a, or a workplace or a or or a or a or a government for that matter that that was interested in happiness right okay in the book you wonder out loud that maybe what we need right now is not more or better science of happiness and behavior but less or at least different and i'm wondering if you uh, what do you imagine that would look like well i mean i think um in some ways it's a it's a it's a distinction between um this endless search for more for more data that right. we now live in a society that believes that if there's more and more and more data then the mysteries of the human soul will kind of disappear in some way i mean that's the sort of uh, ultimate kind of 
behaviorist fantasy of Silicon Valley is that we are really just sort of, um, we're a bit like computers. We, we, we are sort of a mixture of sort of neural and flesh and, and blood and so on. But, but most importantly for Silicon Valley, we're, we're, we're neural creatures. Um, my more recent book actually is, is called Nervous States. And mm-hmm. it's the meaning of the title is partly about um, what it means to live in, in states or societies which which are sort of organized in a kind of neural way in terms of constantly seeking reaction and, and a kind of real-time control but that's a, that's another topic but mm-hmm. um but um so this is kind of idea that you know we could get to the we could sort of plumb the ultimate mysteries of 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 the sorts of things that that aristotle or for that matter you know various um uh, religious leaders have 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 being interested in some metaphysical and and ultimately quite mysterious questions of of what life is about and what's it for could become kind of answered by just simply kind of getting more and more data um which of course also means more and more surveillance because it means mm-hmm. kind of having access to kind of you know uh, our intimate lives and our um uh, family lives and it ultimately kind of eradicates any form of kind of interiority and this is what um, this is the business model of Facebook. Um, it's also, in some ways, the business model of Amazon is 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 to try and eradicate the space of interiority, so that so that you don't really ever need to ask anybody kind of what they want or or, or what they need or or how they are, because you already know. I mean, that's the sort of um, that's the that's the end game in a in a in a, in a rather frightening sense, if you ask me. Right. Um, a different version of that is that there are different social sciences i mean i mentioned earlier i'm a sociologist um but there are different social sciences which are also interested in 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 how people are and in, in, in giving people a voice um psychotherapy and psychoanalysis themselves involve um giving people some kind of voice which is listened to um that doesn't make it a, 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 a the same relationship as a as a scientist and an object because it's 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 relational it's not um it's not a, an act of surveillance um although you know there, you, you could imagine i suppose there are you know certain things like focus groups or things which have an element of kind of feel a bit like group psychotherapy but they also have that kind of mirror where there are other people sort of watching right, right. um so i suppose what what i was interested in was could you imagine a something which was not quite a science, but nevertheless, a, a, a sort of deliberate effort to find out about people. I mean, this can involve surveys. I mean, you know, in, in the book, I talk a bit about some of the moments in the 20th century, um, like with the Midtown surveys in the United States and um, uh, other other famous moments of, you know, attitudinal. There was a huge interest in attitudes in the 1920s and 1930s, uh, which was a kind of new idea was, you know, the people have attitudes towards things. Let's go and find out what they are. And in some sense, that had some quite democratic potential because it, it was about, in some ways, people whose views on things had never really counted for anything. Mm. Um, Roosevelt was used these things a lot. I mean, partly to try and kind of gauge how sort of political rebellions that might be might be swelling and so on. But you know, there was a sort of sense that these um, these these what became opinion polling um, is has a democratic potential. Um, but I think that um, there's a the book is really a, against a kind of behaviorism mm-hmm. that sees speaking as just another kind of behavior in a way, you know, it's just another sort of symptom of something so that, you know, my, th- like that, 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 you know, by listening to the way I'm speaking and the, the, or having some kind of algorithmic analysis of, of my, of my, my behavior, that that will gain a, a higher truth than, than, than you or I who actually part of this conversation are actually able to, to gain. Now the, the, the behaviorist view is disastrous for democracy, but it's also sort of disastrous for, for ethics. And I think that when mm-hmm. it becomes the kind of common sense 
of um, of the workplace, of of of, of, of consumption as well, um, and and of politics, then it kind of strips all of these kind of spaces where we might actually um, uh, either use power or or demand forms of power to actually kind of take you know change things ourselves they become kind of um vacated really because the all of the action is somewhere else all of the decisions and all of the the truth is going on somewhere else behind closed doors right yeah that was wow okay uh you taught you 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 mentioned surveillance and in the book you are also critical of the new surveillance tools that you've been talking about that the happiness industry is inserting into our lives, minds, and bodies. And I'm I'm thinking specifically of how you relate fMRI scanners and neuroscience in our field is really hot, right? The fMRI scanners and Foucault's panopticon. And I'm wondering mm. if you could say a bit more <laughs> about that. Well, I mean, Foucault's panopticon is, um, well, it's Bentham's panopticon. It's, um, oh, yeah, so Foucault right. wrote about it. Um, so, 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 Bentham was the was the designer of the Panopticon, so he was a an Enlightenment um, yep. political and, and economic thinker in the late eighteenth century, and he came up with this 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 design for um, uh, a, um, a a prison that was very influential. It was going to get built, it didn't in the end, but it was um, it has a has a guard in the in the in the central um, kind of um, in the central um, sort of viewing. Platform and then the, the cells are all um, laid out around in a kind of semicircle, so the guard can kind of see all of them, but the prisoners can't see the guard because the guard is kind of concealed and the prisoners are very visible. Um, and Michel Foucault, the, the French um, social theorist and, and historian in the 19, early 1970s, he, he he wrote about this design as being a kind of a, a sort of diagram of how modern power works, uh, particularly paying attention to the to this question of visibility that. The, the, the prisoners were being rendered kind of transparent to, to the eye of the, the guard, that the guard was completely invisible. Um, and the other thing which Foucault kind of points out is quite important in that is that the guard might might actually be absent. The mm-hmm. guard doesn't even have to be there, uh, but the prisoners sort of feel like they're being watched even when they're not. Um, I mean, the, the, the sort of fMRI um, analogy is, again, I think it, it's back to what I was saying a moment ago about the sort of attempt to kind of eradicate uh, interiority. Um, and uh, a, a, an idea that 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 the, the, the terrain of of the truth of of human behavior is something that requires this kind of um, this, this this kind of advanced expert gaze. Um, fMRI has has had certain has been. I mean, I was more um, I suppose writing I think and, and, and critical of the way it's been kind of seized by the market research industry. Um, and there is um, you know there's a lot of interest in. Um, well, not just physiological, but 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 also neurological activity um, in market research, because there's a kind of sense that I mean, there used to be this slogan that was that was used. It's a bit silly, and I'm sure serious neuroscientists don't 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 wouldn't use this kind of phrase. But they used to go, "We'll find the brain's buy button," you know, as if there's a sort of single kind of button that could be pressed and people then kind of buy something. Mm. Um, but I think that um, yeah, the, the, there is a there's there's a long history of efforts to try and um, bring, sort of reveal human behavior and to bring it to light and to bring it out of the darkness, I suppose, for the benefit of, um, of, of some kind of expert viewer who wants to render it predictable and, and controllable. Yeah. Uh, just as a side note, I, I interviewed on this podcast Dina Weisberg, Dr. Dina Weisberg at um, University of Pennsylvania, 
And she's done a lot of re- cognitive psychologists and done a lot of research on basically that if you could show somebody a brain scan, you can get them to believe anything, right? <laughs> and tell them. So yeah. it was really fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it's a sort of, it is the sort of, I think it's interesting. And even now it's kind of, you know, it's being, it's being taught in schools. Um, I mean, my seven-year-old daughter, you know, sometimes mentions kind of her brain when she's sort of, you know, when she's out of sorts, sometimes she'll sort of say, you know, I think my brain just wants to, you know, whatever it might be. Mm. Now she's not taught that, but it's definitely part of the sort of, it's now part of our our, our kind of vernacular as how we understand ourselves as, as, as sort of semi-autonomous human beings. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Um, So what types of uh, workplace organization or worker programs might be useful in our new reality. Right? Well, I mean, in the book, I was, I was interested in, um, I mean, there are, there are these kind of alternative histories um, and, and moments of where things could have gone a different way in the past. So there was a lot of interest in what was called occupational health um, mm-hmm. in, the, in the 1960s. Um, and a lot of that was in keeping with, I suppose, a more sort of radical um, some ways more kind of structural um, view of, 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 of power and, and of behavior. Um, there was much more attention paid in a lot of that work. There was a very famous study in, in the UK called the Whitehall study, which um, was carried out um, looking at the Whitehall is, 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 is the offices of the UK government, basically. Um, and it was looking at um, absence and stress and, and these sorts of things. And it, it found something which was at the time really surprising because it assumed that all of the, the, the main stress would be experienced by those with the most responsibility and the, the hardest jobs. But instead, it found that actually the most stressful type of work is the one where you have no say, basically. You don't, mm-hmm. you have no control over your hours. You don't have any task discretion. You don't, you, you don't have self-respect. Um, and that this was actually, and this was long before the kind of mainstreaming of a sort of discourse of, of, of wellness and, or for that matter, even of, of depression. I mean, back in the 60s, depression wouldn't have been conceived as it, as it is today as a sort of deflation of, 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 of affect and desire. It would have been much more of a sort of, um, uh, a much more um, question, well, it would have been understood in more psychoanalytic terms um so the um uh, you know there was this so a lot of that led to interest in trying to kind of redistribute status and and power in workplaces rather than of, of, of trying to kind of like medicalize the workplace and trying to like you know patch people up and to give them sort of personal kind of treatment plans or counseling or or um you know free smoothies or whatever it might be <laughs> that that sort of contributes to their sort of optimism and positivity was to recognize that actually the sources of, of this were, were were in the sort of design of, of and the distribution of of, of power and, and respect and status in the workplace and to think about, you know, things like pay differentials as well. So um, these things are not irrelevant. I mean, it doesn't mean that you can, you know, people will, it doesn't mean that I'm, I'm not reducing all questions of happiness and unhappiness to, to sort of material economics, mm. but the, there are these sorts of traditions of, of research, which I think are important. Um, there's also one of the things which interests me is um this is something I'd looked at in, in previous work, is democratic, democratically governed or owned organisations, cooperatives um, and spaces where uh, people get to get to speak, they get to have a say. Um, now, a good manager, of course, you know, will care about what people want and feel and, and you know, give people responsibility in, 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 in respect of, of what they want and so on. So, so, so there are traditions of, of management research and human resource management. The, I mean, there's a, there's a famous clinic in London called the Tavistock 
clinic, which in, mm-hmm. in the 1950s, which, which is kind of the people who worked there were sort of weird mixture of, of Freudians and Marxists um, mm-hmm. and um, both really. Um, and um, but yes, they, the Tavistock Clinic, they were drawing a lot on on the sort of group psychology uh, work of people like Kurt Levine and, and Wilfred Bion and, and others to, to think about how would you have a kind of genuinely kind of egalitarian workplace where you sort of actually drew on all people's kind of um, uh, psychological capabilities and, and, and allowed them to flourish as human beings. And this would be a democratic project. It wouldn't be a, wouldn't be done because of the bottom line. <laughs> now, of course, you know, we live in a, in a ruthless competitive capitalist economy. So most businesses have to think about their bottom line, but nevertheless, I think it's, I think it's at least instructive to kind of think about, you know what 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 well-being might mean or what happiness might mean if it wasn't instrumentalized in terms of kind of increasing productivity or reducing um, absence or um, trying to kind of win higher levels of loyalty and commitment to a particular employer All right okay you write that uh, many psychologists and therapists are aware that the problems they are paid to deal with do not start within the mind or body of a solitary individual or even in the family but they, they start with some uh, broader social, political, and economic breakdown. But even with this knowledge, psychology often still acts as a form of social control. Do you, do you have a sense of a solution to that? Or <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think, I mean, you know, maybe that's, um, I'm sure most of your listeners are probably kind of bristling at this moment, maybe. But, um, <laughs> right. um, <laughs> um, but um, you know, I think that, I mean, there are, I mean, there was a, there's a nice, again, most of my examples are from the UK, but there was a, there was a nice group that, uh, called the Midland Psychology Group, which, uh, some of your listeners might be interested in, in, in Googling, um, it's Midland Psychology Group. And this was developed, um, partly in response to the kind of, th- there was a sudden surge of interest in cognitive behavioral therapy and, uh, led by a, a happiness economist called Richard Layard in the UK, who basically went from being a kind of, you know, highly acclaimed labor market economist suddenly having this this kind of um, Damascene moment, um, I don't know, in the kind of early 2000s where he was like, hang on a second, maybe money is not the main indicator of value and, and well-being and maybe there's something else. And he, he, he became very evangelical about not only happiness research, but also particularly cognitive behavioral therapy as a, uh, as a and, he, and he single-handedly got the UK government to invest huge amounts of money in rolling out CBT schemes um, under Tony, Tony Blair's government. Mm. But there was this kind of pushback by this Midland psychology group, which I, I thought was really interesting, which was to sort of try and um, to try and say, well, how would you have a kind of happiness policy on the basis of thinking that the sources of distress, like if you start from the default idea that the sources of distress are external to the to the person, not internal, then psychology then becomes a, a sort of critical tool right. for not for criticizing behaviors and selves and feelings, uh, which potentially becomes a self-critical tool, you know, oh God, you know, I should be feeling happier if only I was mm-hmm. better at, you know, going for a jog and eating the right kind of, you know, vegetables and so on, which becomes almost like a sort of, you know, another kind of superego almost. Um, but instead, psychology becomes a, a, a critical tool which, which, which pushes back against policies that are producing needless distress amongst whatever it might be, like job seekers or, um, you know, policies in, in schools which are kind of over-testing children at much too young an age, purely to gather data, not for the benefit of the child, but purely to, to gather data so as to compare it against another school. And, to you know, a lot of these um, schools are now sort of really drunk the kind of... Um, uh, Kool Aid of of um, you know this idea that that you can sort of 
kind of turned schools into this sort of, um, you know, sort of data-led um, kind of enterprises. Um, and I think that it's interesting to think about what would a what would a uh, what does psychology look like when it's a when it's a critique of institutions and a critique of power rather than um, telling people that or, or, or trying to find ways of getting people to individuals to do things differently. Well, I mean, obviously there are lots of things where, you know, if you can help people stop smoking and, and, and live happier, longer lives, then yeah, you can't, it's hard to sort of criticize that kind of thing. But I still think it's interesting to think a bit about like, on the basis of what we know about, about human beings and, and, and human feelings and human behaviors, um, kind of how would we make, how would we make our institutions, our, our workplaces, our schools, our, our universities and 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 of course our families. I don't know. I don't know quite why I, I sort of picked out families there. It's just that you know, obviously there's a there's a sort of tendency to say, well, I mean, in the in a kind yeah. of Freudian tradition to say, well, it you know begins with the parents. But right, right. you know, there are there are people who can be made utterly miserable by the sheer precarity of, of their of their work, um, and um, find it hard to find meaning and to build meaningful relationships because they're you know they're not able to live in the same home for more than a few months at a time because the rent keeps going up you know so so i think psychologists could and, and are i mean it's not, i'm not saying that this isn't happening but there is i mean there's a movement in the uk called psychologists against austerity which was you know it was a civil society campaign against cuts to various social spending budgets and so on so it, it's happening i mean sure. I, it's not i'm not yep. the only one i don't claim to have sort of you know <laughs> done the sort of court i don't claim to be the only voice um who who accepts that and i'm sure there are plenty of people in your in your profession who, who share some of my my thoughts on that absolutely yeah absolutely uh we need more but there are there are um Okay, in the uh, in the end of your book, you defend the critical mind, and I and I think this is important in our day and age, of course. And I'm, I'm wondering if you could say how how we might you know engage a more critical mind. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I suppose the I'm not sure how the ending really kind of meshes all that well with the with the rest of the book, other than that I suppose what I'm interested in is to say that if we can identify that uh, pain and unhappiness and anger and, and, and sadness are sometimes the result of, of, of injustices and, and of, and of um, forms of domination and forms of inequality, um, then although that doesn't take them away, there's something quite liberating about looking outwards and, and denouncing rather than sort of, you know, being left in with this sort of, kind of seemingly kind of spontaneous sort of neural breakdown which uh, as, as something like depression can, can, can very often be can be um, just, just sort of viewed as which isn't to say that there aren't sort of neural breakdowns that, that coincide with depression um, uh, or, nor that um, uh, pharmaceuticals haven't done wonderful things for many sufferers from, from depression um, the um, I suppose that in terms of what does that what does that project look like? I mean, it's funny, like I've had students actually who have read my book and because I teach political economy. So most of what I teach is nothing to do with psychology or or, 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 um, or, or psychoanalysis. Um, I teach stuff about, you know, neoliberalism and, mm -hmm. and, um, and, and capitalism and, and questions of inequality. But I think that the younger generation, so some of my students who for whom their mental health is a, is a kind of 
you know, every day, you know, there's, n I don't know any students for whom their mental health is a, has not become an issue in some way nowadays. Right. And, and that's a, as much a, about the kind of world they live in as, as about the, 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 the discourses that are available to them and the, the culture they inhabit. It's, it's about, you know, I think there are sort of objective and material reasons why their lives are much more stressful than, than, than mine was, um, you know, 20 years earlier. Mm. Um, uh, but I think that they take great heart from this idea that actually, you know, this, that they're, that they're, that their um, stress is not kind of something that belongs only to them and it's not something which is a solitary experience and it's also not something that they're necessarily responsible for. Um, I mean, there's, a, there's another um, uh, thinker, um, uh, Mark Fisher, who is, um, a, a British, was a British cultural writer. Um, he died in 2017, um, uh, but he'd written a lot about mental health in relation to, to capitalism and, and, and resu helped resuscitate... Um, some of the critical psychology work of, of certain, I suppose, quite Marxist critical psychologists in the UK, like David Smale and Mark Rapley, and these sorts of people who were trying to kind of pull psychology back from um, uh, towards a, a more set of sort of sociological set of concerns. So I think that's partly about how did that social critical psychology itself get kind of slightly sidelined within the academy um and there are various reasons for that and that's you know partly that sociological and, and structural and um uh, and critical discourses within the academy generally have been kind of squeezed in lots of ways i suppose the the the, the difficulty that we face increasingly in terms of back to your question about what is is you know how do we think in a critical way is um that we we also now inhabit a lot of our lives in these kind of platform based spaces and social media environments where um partly through a sheer overabundance of content the entire time critique can often just become a sort of dislike you know it becomes like a sort of thumb down rather than a thumb up or potentially it becomes a block or a cancel or an unfollow or you know right, potentially right. just like get this thing out of my face kind of thing that's sort of the 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 problem that that critique kind of can can morph into there's another problem as well which is that some of the loudest critics in some respects are some of the most obnoxious people on the planet like donald trump i mean you know like uh, he, he he everything's unfair like that's unfair that's unfair unfair is one of his favorite words and, and unfair is un the idea of unfairness is a kind of an important sort of um uh, index of of how critique works um and so we all kind of live in a world where we're sort of constantly sort of you know denouncing and 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 um and 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 sort of blocking and kind of attacking and so there's a lot of sort of negative energy um For sure yeah. uh, but i think the question is sort of what where does that turn into something that actually is capable of a kind of dialogue um and perhaps doesn't start from uh being against something which is how a lot of i think social media discourse works is i'm against this you know like you know we're having the statue debates at the moment in this country and like there are people who are like i'm against churchill i just want to knock it down and there are people oh, i'm pro Churchill, i want to keep it up and if that's all that it can be if, if if the critique is is just no and the opposition is just yes then you're not that then there's a sort of impoverishment of something that could actually uh, illuminate the, the the sources of 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 distress and of oppression in the world at the end of which you might decide to knock Churchill statue down but <laughs> but if but 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 that has to be a has to be an outcome rather than a rather than a um a sort of starting identifying point. starting point yeah no that's great and uh and it's a question I'm I'm wrestling with it even in my own life and work and mm -hmm. and I think you yeah you spoke to it quite well and um I think there's something there uh, we we need to learn how to be critical again in in relational uh, yeah, at relational same, terms. At the sa yeah. same time, yeah. 
Anyway, my final question, and thank you for this, Will. It's been wonderful. But my my final question for you is, uh, what new ideas or books or mm. uh, philosophies or capture? I know you have said you have a more recent book, but what's mm. capturing your attention these days? That's a good question. I mean, I um. So one of the things I've been trying to write about anyway, and this is where I've been reading to try and get this together, is partly back to the previous question. I I feel like one of the things I'm interested in, in trying to think through is um, how, I suppose, more... The, so there's a kind of, you know, the culture war kind of cliche that I know is sort of rages very heavily in, in, in your country and, and sure. sort yeah. of latterly in, in, in my own. Um, and some people think it's kind of almost like an import. <laughs> um, uh, and but I think there's a there's a there's a um, where you know you have the the conservatives who say that there's a lot of kind of woke young people who who are sort of um, who are sort of you know too touchy about their feelings and all that kind of stuff like the Jonathan Haidt kind of thesis. I yeah. don't know if you know this yeah. this book, yeah. Yeah. Uh, which I don't have a particular strong view on that, but it's. Um, uh, but it's it's now really taken off in this country that, that 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 anyone who works in university or anyone under the age of kind of thirty is kind of obsessed with their own uh, sort of feelings and can't cope with um, with, with with conflict um, and 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 these other people are just want, want to kind of like celebrate you know the establishment and so on um, and it's a terrible kind of basis for any kind of sort of politics <laughs> you know it doesn't re- like all of this doesn't I suppose what um, I um, uh, you know, what I've been trying to write about anyway recently is precisely this question of, because in some ways I think the left has got a problem. It's just that it, I don't want it to to be defined on the terms of the right. I think there is a there is a problem going on. Um, and I think that the problem, the left needs to kind of address the, its own difficulties of actually sort of um, trying to sustain um, some quite difficult um, conversations um, and to some of this gets dealt with in under the kind of rubric of kind of post-truth that, you know, which of course is often seen as a right-wing thing, but anyway, but, but the people are just sort of so kind of emotional in their sort of identifications that they, that they just either ignore or just discredit anything that sort of gets in, get sort of, you know, troubles them in some way um, mm-hmm. across the political spectrum, I suppose. Um, and we had it with Brexit this as well. Um, and I think that this there is a there is a real problem here. I think I think it's I think there's some truth in that in that sort of more kind of positivist allegation in a way. Um, but I want to try and think about it partly in terms of the way the platform economy has reconfigured our, our public sphere, so that effectively um, it becomes impossible to use these platforms without, in some sense, trying to build one's reputation um, and uh, and to gain likes and 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 once someone has a big reputation they become a target of some kind of reputational attack and a, and a, and a trolling exercise and so on now without wanting to get involved in all of the kind of rights and wrongs of you know who should have been cancelled who shouldn't have been cancelled and so on <laughs> i think it's a kind of way of trying to get around some of those sorts of discussions to try and challenge the actual infrastructure uh, that we've allowed ourselves to become dependent on We've allowed ourselves for these for these to become the rules of how our, our, our public deliberations and arguments right. are carried out. Right. One of the best books on this, which I think is which is deeply psychoanalytic as well, is The Twittering Machine by Richard Seymour, who is a mainly seen as a left-wing political activist in the UK. I reviewed it in the in the Guardian um, last summer. I think it's an absolutely fabulous book. But it's really about how did we allow ourselves, what parts of our psyche and and what aspects of our sometimes quite sadistic um, impulses have drawn us into this kind of space of 
of of of, of sort of you know um, experiences of sort of Schadenfreude of watching people, other people being kind of uh, belittled and diminished, and and sort of you know the, the quest that we have for our own celebrity. So that many of the sort of darker aspects of the human psyche are being kind of like toyed with by by some of these platforms. Now I don't think Richard Seymour really has the <laughs> has the answer. I mean I think the main thing is to try and use them a bit less um, right. and to try and you know read normal text a bit more. Um, um, I don't think you know, we can blame all the world's ills on them, but I think that they have sort of, um, they've deprived us of um, the capacity to find forms of disagreement that I think are more are more productive and more illuminating. Um, but uh, that I, I don't choose to, to pursue that argument by kind of, you know, in the way that someone like Height does, which is to sort of, you know, show a lot of survey data showing that, you know, young people want to kind of know platform speakers and so on. But mm. um, I, I think that there is, nevertheless, something has happened. And it's not, it's, it's happening across the political spectrum is that, is that I think that the, um, the, the ability to understand others is being, is being um, gradually chipped away. And I, I find that frightening. And I think that it benefits um, politicians like Trump, right, right. like Boris Johnson in my own country, who don't require people to understand anything. Um, and they don't expect to be understood themselves. All they all they expect to do is to sort of be kind of um, performance cartoon characters. And they don't, you know, and as soon as anyone comes along and tries to bring understanding, then there's too many people are laughing and shouting and, and hating and, in, and, and and nothing else can take place. So I, I suppose those are the sort of things which are on my mind. But um, I, I certainly don't have any <laughs> magic bullets to it of any of that. I don't want to kind of blame. I don't really want to blame anyone for it. I, I, although I slightly want to blame some, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, something like that, for some Yeah, and uh, I look forward to that book. So, <laughs> and we'll have. <laughs> well, there's a couple of articles which I've, I've been working on. <laughs> okay, great. Uh, anyway, Will, thank you very much. This has been illuminating for me, and uh, yeah, it's been I, a pleasure. Very much appreciate your time, and uh, just thanks for coming on. Great, thanks for having me. All right, that's our show, and I hope you got a lot out of it. I I most certainly did. Um, and if you did, please, like I said earlier, um, please share on your social media, tag me. I want to know who's listening and where you're at. Um, you can rate and review the show. That would be much appreciated. And please come find us on social media, Instagram at The Radical Therapist. I'm also at Dr. Chris Hoff on Instagram. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, the Radical Therapist Facebook page, and then, of course, Twitter, which I don't really know how to do, but Twitter at the Rad Therapist and come find us in all those places. And, yeah, so, um, yeah, I think that's it. I do have stickers. If you want some Radical Therapist stickers, just shoot me an email and I'll get them out to you. And I am thinking about doing these conversations around these episodes. I forgot to mention that. Uh, doing conversations around the episodes I do either via Zoom or something like that. So if that's something that might interest you, please shoot me an email at theradicaltherapist at gmail.com. And that's something I'm going to try to bring together conversations, radical therapist conversations uh, virtually. Uh, and maybe we can talk about some of these episodes, what ideas, questions, et cetera, they're bringing up. And I think that could be a lot of fun. So if you think that same, please shoot me an email. Let me know. Otherwise... My name is Dr. Chris Hoff, and as always, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.